Well, we're just about an hour or so away from an important decision. We've got to decide what we're going to have for lunch. You know. uh, if, if you're lucky enough that mom's got something going at home in the crock pot or something else, good for you. But for others, of course, there will be the decision about where can we go to get something to eat. And there's lots of choices. I mean, uh, not very far from here, uh, there's several different kinds of hamburgers that you can have. Uh, there's chicken, there's fish, there's roast beef, there's pizza, and what will you choose? Because, of course, one of the factors in that is we want it, and we want it fast. We don't want to wait forever to get what we want to eat, you know. So a lot of things will go into making this decision. Lots of choices to make. How will you decide? Well, I want to suggest to you that right close to here this morning also are a number of churches to choose from. And how will you make that choice? There's, of course, every sort of a denomination around here. But even among churches of Christ, there are several around here, some big, some small, some who do certain things that others don't do, uh, some who engage in certain activities that others have an objection to. Uh, how will you decide which one that you will be a part of? How can you choose between churches? And of course, the fact of the matter is that you must make such a choice. Let me suggest to you that we actually have some guidelines for that. And the guidelines come from the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And for a few moments this morning, we want to ask the question, would Jesus choose this church? Of course, we would hope that He would, but would He? How would we know? I think He tells us, and we're going to look to that in just a minute. Um, thank you for being here. We're grateful for everyone on this Lord's Day and glad that you would choose to come and be a part of these services today. We have visitors and we're grateful for our visitors. Glad you came. We hope you'll come back every time you have a chance. For all of our members, we're encouraged by your presence as well. Uh, thanks for being here today. We hope and pray that our worship will be acceptable to God and will glorify His name. And we hope and pray that each one of us will be edified and encouraged uh, by the time spent this morning. Thanks for being a part of this. All right, what are the guidelines that Jesus would choose, use to choose, if he was choosing a church? Well, there was a time when Jesus gave an appraisal of seven churches in a general geographical location. And what he had to say about them is recorded for us, and I know that you are already way ahead of me on this. We're talking about what he said to the seven churches of Asia in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. We just want to go through that again this morning to think about what things Jesus saw as important, that the, the things he wanted to see in a church. And I hope you would agree with me that what he wanted in a church should be exactly the same thing that we want in a church. And so this would be an important sort of guideline, uh, maybe not necessarily a checklist, but certainly things that have to be on our list of necessities if we're going to choose a given church. For instance, we know that Jesus wants a church that has not left its first love. To the church at Ephesus, in chapter 2 of Revelation, verse 4, he says, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, notice, because thou hast left thy first love. Now, as you read that whole context of the things that Jesus was saying to the church at Ephesus, you find out that they were still 
doing a number of things. They were still sort of going through the motions. But Jesus objected to them because he could tell that they had lost their love and dedication. And that maybe, in fact, they were just going through the motions and that did not satisfy him. He was not pleased with that. A preacher friend of mine gave this comparison. I think it's so fitting. Uh, Here's a husband who comes home one evening and he says to his wife, we've got to talk. And he says, after the kids go off to bed, I want to have a serious discussion with you. And so later in the evening, they sit down together and he says to his wife, I just want you to know that I don't love you anymore. But, but, we're going to continue to be married and we're going to continue to have our home together. We're going to continue to raise our kids. We're going to continue to do the things we've been doing. But I just felt that I owed it to you to tell you I don't love you anymore. Now, as you think about that, what wife would be satisfied with an arrangement like that? In other words, in appearance, everything goes on as normal, as it has been in the past. But she knows that her husband doesn't love her anymore. Would she be, would there be any wife in the world who'd be content with an arrangement like that? And I think the answer is obviously no. So the Lord is saying that's how he feels too. He's not content with us just to go through the motions of serving Him. He wants us to serve Him out of a deep love and conviction, dedication. He wants us to love Him. And so, uh, would Jesus choose this church, or might it be the case that we've lost our first love? Jesus also wants a church that is rich in good works. There are some folks, I'm certain, who would not be comfortable with a church full of poor, poverty-stricken people. There are some who are looking for a church that's full of prosperous young professionals. You know, a church in the suburbs, a, a church where when you pull into the parking lot, it's full of nice cars and everybody is dressed just to the nines. And, you know, you just everything is top-notch. There are some people who almost require such, you know, I would not be comfortable sitting in a pew with someone who had very little or almost nothing, someone who's really stricken by poverty. But that's not the way the Lord measures things. The Lord is not looking at material prosperity as being the determinant of whether it's a good church or not. He's looking for a church that is rich in good works. To the church at Smyrna, in chapter 2, verse 9, he says, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. Notice that this church was apparently such a church. It was a church made up of poor people. They were poverty-stricken. And yet Jesus said, I know that thou art rich. And of course, what he's talking about is that they were rich in good works. And that's what he's looking for. That's what he wants in us. He's not concerned about what is the average annual income of the households represented at College View. That doesn't matter to him at all. But what he is interested in is if we're busy doing the works that he wants. Are we reaching out to the lost people around us? Are we really trying to teach and convert people who need to know about salvation through Jesus Christ? Uh, Are we busy encouraging the weak, trying to strengthen those who are struggling spiritually? Are we rich in good works? Because that's what the Lord wants in a church. That's what he's looking for. And I certainly hope that that would be what we're looking for as well. Are you beginning to get the idea? Uh, uh, 
If you were in the car sales business, in order to be an effective car salesman, something that you have to perceive just about as soon as you meet up with someone who comes onto the car lot is what are they looking for? Because if, if, if it's a person who's looking for a subcompact and you're trying to, to sell them a, a, a luxury sedan, you're probably not going to be successful. You need to know what they're looking for so you can sell them what they want. If you're in the real estate business, you know, if, if you've got a family that can only afford a $75,000 house, but you're trying to show them million-dollar houses, you're probably not going to be successful because you, you're not keying in on what they're looking for, right? Well, in this instance, we need to key in on what Jesus is looking for in a church because that's the kind of church we want to be. And so, we need to be deeply committed with love and dedication, with not losing our first love, rich in good works. Jesus is also looking for a church that does not tolerate false doctrine. To the church at Pergamos, notice what Jesus said. I have a few things against thee. This is in chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. I have a few things against thee because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. Well, what was that doctrine of Balaam? I don't know that any... In my studies, I've never been able to determine for sure that anybody knows exactly what the doctrine of Balaam was. He goes on, So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And again... I don't think anybody can say with absolute certainty. There's some, I think, pretty good educated guesses. But what was the doctrine of the Nicolaitans? Those, whatever they were, I don't think there are issues. I don't think that they are big issues in the world today. But the message to Jesus was, Jesus was clear, repent or else I will come unto thee quickly. Doctrine is important to the Lord. Too many people in our day and time, certainly the vast majority of people in the religious world, have developed the live and let live attitude. Doctrine is not important to most folks. Very low on the list. If they were trying to choose a church, uh, the doctrinal positions that the church held would not matter to them much at all. But we see that it's high on the Lord's list when He's choosing what He wants. Doctrine is important. Uh, it's important to Jesus, and it should be to us as well. To this church at Pergamos, Jesus specifically had objection to them because they were harboring false doctrine, and he would not tolerate that. So that's got to be important too. Now, our idea is Jesus is specifying here, isn't he? He's giving us clearly what he's looking for in church. Would he choose this one? Well, we know what it would have to be true if he was to choose this church. Jesus is looking for a church that won't stand for immorality. It is clear, I think we've all experienced it, that increasingly people dislike teaching on moral issues. Unfortunately, among our own brethren, there's an increasing intolerance for talking about things like modest dress. Uh, some Christians do not want to hear... Uh, Messages that condemn dancing, uh, or mixed swimming, or uh, drinking alcohol, or uh, explaining the truth of the Scriptures about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Uh, there's just an increasing intolerance for that sort of thing. Unfortunately, as I said, even among our own brethren, but Jesus wants a church that won't stand for immorality. Look what he said to the church at Thyatira. In chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, I know thy works and charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works and the last to be more than the first. 
So apparently they were doing a number of good things. But notice he says, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which called herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication, to eat things sacrificed unto idols. Some people have wondered, was this literal or a figurative uh, form of fornication or unfaithfulness? Uh, it doesn't really matter here, but the idea that's being expressed by Jesus, especially when he draws the imagery of that horrible wife of King Ahab in the Old Testament, Jezebel, and all the wickedness that she represented in the Old Testament. There was somebody, some influence in, in that church that was like her, that was encouraging immorality among the members, and they were putting up with it. They were tolerating it. And Jesus said that that could not continue if he was going to bless that church. And so from that, we would clearly see that Jesus is saying no tolerance for immorality. He's looking for a church that will not stand for immorality. Jesus is looking for a church that is not dead. Now that, you know, you, you would seem to think that almost go without saying, I don't want to be a member of a dead church, right? But that's maybe not as obvious as you would think. Notice what he said to the church at Sardis in chapter 3 at verse 1. Unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that's, that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know thy works, notice this, that thou hast a name, that thou livest, and are dead. Well, what would, if you, if, when you hear that expression, thou hast a name, wouldn't you get the idea that he's probably talking about some sort of rep, reputation that they possessed? They, be, they possessed some sort of reputation, and the reputation was that they were alive, when in reality, they were dead. How would that be? How could that be? Well, uh, I don't know, because it's not specified, but you could think of some modern-day possibilities. There are some churches that appear to be living. Maybe they have a, a full social agenda. I mean, maybe there's lots of activities going on, a lot of entertainment, a lot of recreation, uh, you know, just a beehive of non-spiritual activity. A beehive of things that likely the church is not even authorized to be involved in. Lots of things going on. They appear to be a very alive group of people but they're actually dead because they're not doing the things that the Lord wants them to do. They're not pursuing the spiritual agenda that the Lord would have them to. I think we see lots of congregations like that in our day and time. They have a reputation. They have a name that they are living, but they are dead. And the question comes, would that be indicative of us? Could that description be attached to us? That when everything is said and done, we're really dead because we're not doing what the Lord wants us to do. That's something that's got to be considered. Jesus is looking for a church that is faithful to the Word. Are you noticing that the Lord's measuring stick is always the Word? That that's how He analyzes churches? That's how He determines how congregations are doing or not? To the church at Philadelphia, the Lord said, I know thy works. This is chapter 3, verses 8 and 10. I know thy works. Behold, I set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it, for thou hast a little strength, notice, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. 
Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation. Very simply put, they were true to the word of God. And, and that ought to be a top priority for us as well. Um, how well the Lord receives a church is directly related to whether or not they've obeyed the things that are revealed in His Word. You know, sometimes we use the description, and I, I, I hope we always will, that we want book, chapter, and verse for everything that we do here. Now, that's our expression. Uh, the, maybe the, the passage that defines that from the Bible is the one that Ethan read for us earlier from Colossians 3, verse 17. Whatsoever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of, or by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. We need to be doing all by the authority of Scriptures. Jesus is looking for that. Sometimes uh, we talk about giving a thus saith the Lord. Why are you doing that? Why does the church at College View do that that way? Well, hopefully we can say, well, because here's what we read in the Word of God. Here's a thus saith the Lord. Here's a book, chapter, and verse. Now, someone says, oh, I believe you're overemphasizing that. Well, how could you possibly overemphasize that? When clearly Jesus is looking for that, keeping the Word, being true to the Word, that's what Jesus is looking for. All right, there were seven churches, right? We've got six of them done. You know the last one. And maybe the expression made to the church at uh, Laodicea is the one that's most remembered of all of these. In Revelation chapter 3, beginning verse 15, I know thy works, that thou art neither hot, cold nor hot. I would thou work cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Here's a church that had grown lukewarm. How would you, how would you measure a cold church? Well, a cold church would be one that's not doing anything. You know, they're dead and grown cold and dead. Uh, a church that's hot, you would have to say, was a church that's really busy working, doing the will of God, really striving to be all that they ought to be. So there's cold and there's hot, and then there's something in the middle that Jesus called lukewarm. I think we could probably describe a group like that as a group that is content to maintain the status quo, you know. Uh, sometimes you even hear brethren use expressions like, well, we're just holding our own, you know, just holding our own. Um, the idea of that perhaps is that we're not going backward, but we're not going very far forward either. That just seems to me to describe lukewarmness. And Jesus is saying he does not want a church that is lukewarm. He, wa he wants a church that's hungry, desirous of, of accomplishing more to his honor and glory. That we're pushing forward, that we're really trying to do all that we possibly can to, to uh, convert the lost and do all the other kind of things that Jesus wants us to do. He does not want us to be lukewarm. It may never be said of us that we have grown lukewarm in His service. We're just sort of holding place in time. That's no good. Jesus says that's not what He wants. Now, here's the danger. Do you notice in this description to the church at Laodicea, they had apparently become self-deceived in this regard. 
They, they had measured themselves and said, I am rich, I am increased with goods, I have need of nothing. And Jesus said, you don't even know. You can't even, you're not even able now, you've gotten so far into this, you're not even able to realize that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And so the danger, of course, is being self-deceived in this as we evaluate our local congregational work, and we cannot afford to do that. All right. Remember the initial question is, would Jesus choose this church? There's lots of choices, all kinds of choices right around here. Many choices of churches that you could be a part of. There's many churches of Christ that you might choose to be a part of. But what we want to know is this one, what the Lord wants it to be. Would Jesus choose this church? Right there in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, I think we have a very clear picture of what the Lord is looking for and whether or not he would choose this church. Has not left the first love, rich in good works, not tolerating false doctrine, not standing for immorality, not dead, faithful to the word, not lukewarm. All right, so with that question in mind, again, we ask simply, are we such a church? Are we such a church that Jesus of the kind that Jesus wants? That really needs to be important to us. We, we need to do a lot of analysis, constantly measuring ourselves to see if we are such a church. And then, not only is this church such a church, but the follow-up question is, do you desire and will you be content with a church that is like the one Jesus wants? That, that ought to go... Without saying, it ought to be an obvious yes, but unfortunately, I think in the world today, we see a lot of people who do not desire such a church and would not be content with one if they found it. It's not what they're looking for. Well, uh, in, in all humility, we have to say what Jesus is looking for is way more important than what I may desire, what my preference might be. In fact, what we should be striving for is to bring our preferences into line with the Lord's preferences in all things and in regards to the local congregation as well. Would Jesus choose this church? We certainly hope so. And that's the goal we're striving for, to make this church a church like the one that we read described in the Word of God. Thanks for your good attention to what we've had to say. As we bring the lesson to a close, we're going to sing a song of invitation. In doing this, we'll lend an opportunity to everyone to make sure your heart is right with God. If you've never named the name of Christ, if you've never obeyed that simple gospel plan of salvation, we encourage you to do that without delay. Hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized for the remission of sins. If you need more study, more information, if you, if you, you need some questions answered before you can make that decision, just say a word. We'd be anxious to study with you. If you're a Christian already, but you've fallen away, we beg you to come back in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help, let us know while we stand and sing this song. Of Jesus, say, come on, be at rest. Say, come on, be at